With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Does anybody want breakfast? Guys, let's go. I'm leaving for McDonald's in five seconds. Why didn't you start with that? The Breakfast Stampede Meal. It's only at McDonald's, where there's a meal for every morning. And nothing says morning like a classic sausage McMuffin with egg. Right now, get this all-time favorite for just 2 bucks on the one 2 3 menu. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to another Touchdown Fracas interview special. Um, today I'm joined by two special people. Not only am I joined by my co-host, Ife, aka Mr. Means. How, how you doing, man? I'm not too bad, my friend. How are you? I'm very good. Um, I'm also joined by uh, The Guardian's Ed Ahrens. How are you doing, Ed? I'm good, thanks. Good evening to you too. Thank you. How how is lockdown? How is lockdown treating you? I feel like that's the that's the icebreaker these days. That's like the the the, the equivalent of oh, yeah. what's what's oh, uh, how how you finding the weather kind of thing. That's that's the icebreaker <laughs> in in today's well, climate. Yeah, it's been. Uh, I mean, I think like everybody, I'm kind of getting a bit bored of just being at home all the time. And uh, I mean, I'm supposed to be on holiday at the moment, like you know, in, uh, in the old in the old world. Don't obviously don't yeah. want to complain about that though, because you know there's obviously a lot worse things going on. Yeah, sure. But, um, yeah, I think everyone, like everybody, looking forward to having football back. Um, but I mean, for me, I've been—it's not that different day to day because you don't do go into the office sometimes, but haven't had to as much. Uh, mm. But I often work from home anyway, so like you know, it's kind of—it's good to see how people have adapted, and I think that's uh, positive for the future. Hopefully. Sure. Yeah. sure. Um, just a quick background on on Ed. Ed has just released a book. It's called uh, Made in Africa. Um, uh, it's the history of African players in in English football. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll put the link in uh, of the book in in our bio, so you guys can all purchase it. Um, but yeah, um, Ed, the, the reason obviously we wanted to get you on the show is obviously we have a you know a vested interest in like. Um, uh, football and and uh, and the black experience in football in particular, and um, I just wanted to know essentially like what it is that got you into um, following African football and 
like what what is your vested interest into um football in africa itself well it's, it's quite a long story as you can imagine but I think That's, they're, they're the best stories that i find yeah, no, I, I like telling it to be honest and i think i'm sure that a lot of people of my generation will hopefully can relate to some of it, this anyway because you know whatever if you're white black or whatever you know but um so i was nine, nine in 1990 uh, the, the the World Cup and that's the the first World Cup I remember mm. and uh, England Cameroon quarterfinal um, England were lucky to get through they just showed it actually on BBC a few weeks ago they had two penalties from Gary Lineker to beat Cameroon they were the first African team to get to the quarterfinals and Roger Miller I don't know if people remember him he was mm. almost 40 at the time and just uh, brilliant had a brilliant like celebration and everything and it just sort of opened my mind to the to watching uh, players from Africa. But also, I have to say, actually, um, I'm from South London and I support Crystal Palace. Although, actually, at that age, I think I was a bit more of a Liverpool fan, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I worry about this a few, uh, a few weeks ago. But anyway, um, but yeah, I used to go and watch Palace. And at the time, with my dad, and uh, even though I didn't support them, I was watching Ian Wright, Mark Wright, John Salako, who's in my book, actually. He's born mm. in, uh, in, in Nigeria. Uh, Richard Shaw, just so many black players, George Dar, so many black players from the local area, really. And it was that was that was another thing that kind of got me interested in, in black players as well. And I've always taken an interest in uh, in the history of black players as well. I've done you know I've done quite a lot of stuff about Laurie Cunningham in the past as well. Yeah. But um, yeah, and then African players. In terms of African players, when I was a teenager, this is what I mean. You know, in terms of other people maybe being being able to relate to this. People like Peter and Love and Tony Yaboa, and then going on, you know, people like JJ Akocha, Kanu, um, and, you know, uh, players like that, you know, in the coming up to the turn of the century. That was, like, you know, my, my teenage years. And it really just captured my imagination. It's like, I think a lot of people would, would agree, hadn't really seen players like that in England, you know, had really ever seen a player like Kanu before or even since, yeah. maybe, because he was quite unique. Or a Kocha again, another Nigerian, but a totally different size and stature and play a different player. But it was so exciting to watch. Uh, you know, I, I didn't support Bolton or anything, but just that the kind watching of watching them. Yeah, yeah, just like watching them. And uh, and then yeah, so in in my professional, I became a journalist and I sort of carried that on within uh, within that. And I went to live in South Africa for two years for the World Cup. So I thought that was a very important moment for for African football. You know, hosting the World Cup. Yeah. Didn't quite turn out with like ten years on. Didn't quite turn out as everybody hoped. But it was a. Mm -hmm. I was there for that Ghana game, you know, against Uruguay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. If, look at your face, smile. Look at his smile. <laughs> 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 you know, those, uh, back then, I don't know if people remember, but what um, what like video technology was like. But it was awful, you know. Yeah. Like, I had a digital camera, and I was in the very back row. I think it was in soccer. I can't remember what ground it was in. Anyway. The very back row of a massive stadium and for some reason I started filming that corner I think it was a corner when he handballed it mm. so I've got my reaction live on it of like wow like everyone's going handball and it was like crazy and and when it all happened it all unfolded and they lost and everything I honestly felt so gutted and like more gutted or as gutted as I ever had about England losing or something like that you know the devastation of it all must yeah and it was like because to be there at that time you know everyone took on Ghana as their team yeah. Unless you're so, Nigerian, of apart course. Apart from Nigeria. Apart from Nigeria. But yeah, everyone in Africa, I think there's a sort of sense around the world as well. You know, everyone wanted an African team to do well in that tournament. Yeah. 
to be fair, so close. To be fair, even me being Nigerian, (laughs) like in terms of heritage, anyway, um, I know it's more. I was rooting for them. Don't get twisted. I was. I wanted them to go through, but just the inner Nigerian within me. Once that happened, it was just almost like yes. Oh, it's bad. Well, it's that's terrible. That's but, the biggest, one of the biggest rivalries in African football, in Africa, just not just in football, in, in yeah. everything, isn't it? Period. So it was just yeah. like uh, it was. It was a. It was sad, but there was an overwhelming relief because mm. you just wouldn't have heard, heard the end of it. So it's just it was a bit of a. Uh, that's What's the first Nigerian? You can see it. <laughs> second round. Second yeah. round, uh-huh. okay. yeah, but that was another great team, and actually, yeah, that was that team was quite important for like players like uh, well, I'm not sure many people remember him, but Daniel Amakachi, who was at Everton, he was one of the first Nigerians. I'll speak to him in the book as well, but yeah, so I think it, you know, all that experience in Africa, I know, made me really love it even more. African football, and just thinking that it was such an underrepresented area of football, especially in England, you know, in other countries, they really have kind of honoured their, you know, the African influence in France and Portugal, like Eusebio with Portugal, people mm-hmm. like that. But here it's kind of taken a long time for us to get there. And I thought it was something that was, was really needed. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of the stories are just unbelievable that I've uh, uncovered, not uncovered, but told. some of them kind of found out a little bit or a, a little bit more than maybe other people had before. And some of them I'm just telling the stories that other people have uncovered, you know, and like how they all came about as well. It's just all very interesting. I, I think so. Anyway, hopefully other people will. Yeah, well. yeah I'm sure they will when they read the book, for sure. Yeah, yeah I, I listened to um, your uh, your podcast on TIFO actually the other day, which is obviously why, why I reached out to you. And um, yeah, I, I heard some of the stories. Obviously, you said I've started reading your book, thanks to that you've sent it over to me. I've started reading it. And there, there are there are quite some very intriguing um, st- st- stories that you wouldn't necessarily expect to find in, in, in a, like a, a, a book about football. Um, it's quite movie-like, some of the stories, you know? Um, so... Some of them are unbelievable. I mean, like you, uh, the first chapter's got Stevie Wonder in it, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and that's, I mean, it's un- that's a crazy story, isn't it? Uh, and just to think, uh, it's about, uh, just to fill people in, it's about Arthur Wharton, the player who's the first African player who's from, uh, sorry, to play in England, who's from the Gold Coast, as it was called then, which was Ghana. Ghana, yeah. We've mentioned him before. And he came over in 1880, uh, in the 1880s, 1885 is when he first played professionally. But he was also like a 100 metres world record holder as well. Uh, And like, there's the, I mean, Usain Bolt is is aware of him now. And he's, you know, the, the guy that, Help to bring his story to to the world is like working with Usain Bolt and stuff, and it's, he's gone a lot. You know, he's put his whole life into it. He's called Sean Campbell, mm. um, and yeah, I mean, the he, he's the reason that there's a statue of him at the uh, at the St George's Park. You know, where yeah. he's been trained and everything. So it's, that's an amazing achievement for somebody who was 20 years ago, like literally no one had heard of him mm. because he he was like I think this is a theme in the book. A lot of black people in Britain that just in the old days was not wiped from history, but no one honoured them, mm-hmm. and, their, and their names were forgotten. And they, this guy was buried in a pauper's grave in in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. And no one knew about this, you know, his athletic career. It's an incredible story. Career. Yeah, yeah, and it's just one. You know, the first three or four characters in the book, as it goes through the years, is they're very similar, unfortunately to say. Yeah. 
some of them end up alcoholics a few of the men that was some of the men's up in jail mm. you know like it's really quite sad what happens to, to them and i think um it's you know everybody everybody takes a bit of blame for their own um their own failings in life and stuff but i think in, the, in this case it's really sad to see like the environment that contributed to their downfalls you know um so just going back a little bit in regards to um because as you mentioned you know italy france they've like embraced um african players going over there and playing um why do you think or or what were the barriers do you think um that prevented it well that made it a lot harder or a lot it took a lot longer for it to be embraced over here in your in your eyes yeah, it's interesting i think if you compare us with france it's very there's a big difference so i'm not sure most people will know but uh, just fontaine who uh has got the record for the most goals at any world cup yeah. i think it was 14 in 1958 yeah. was from morocco mm. and he played for france uh and then as i mentioned before eusebio was born in mozambique played for portugal was top scorer at the 1966 world cup and there was, I think there was three or four players from Angola and Mozambique who played for Portugal in that World Cup. So at that time, they were using their colonies to, you know, to benefit their national teams. They saw, they, they knew the ability of African players even you know, that long ago. Whereas in England, it was, it was a lot of distrust, I think, with, and it's, it's all about the sort of the method of colonialism as well. Like English colonialism, it was like, they, at arm's length was the French they convinced the people that they were French citizens. And right. it's quite a big difference, actually. It's very interesting history if you look into it, you know. And also, we had uh, work permit restrictions, like mm. we do now as well. Uh, but then it was absolutely no foreigners. So if you look back in the 60s and 70s in English football, there was no foreign players, let alone, you know, not even European players we're talking about, let alone mm. African players, until the 70s. And then it slowly started to happen uh, in England. But... Yeah, I mean, I talk about Belgium quite a lot in the book with Divock Carigi's dad, who's from Kenya. Um, and uh, his family's like a sort of f- football dynasty from Kenya. And mm. but his dad, uh, Divock's dad, was the first to come to Europe because I talked to his brother, uh, so Divock's uncle, who's called Austin Adore. And he was a great player as well. But in the 80s, when he was top player, there was, there was no pathway there. There was no chance of you, you, even if you were the best player in Africa, no one went to England. So, whereas... His little brother, Mike, who's Divock's dad, a few years later in the early 90s, went to Belgium in Genk and did really well. And that opened up a pathway, moved to, you know, he moved to, uh, to, to Belgium, had Divock was born there. Divock now plays for Belgium and he plays for Liverpool. And, you know, it's kind of, that's, that's how it's had to happen. There's been no, like, uh, you know, uh, organic process for African players like there has been for maybe Spanish players or... French players or whatever, you know, they've had to literally fight to get their, you know, to get into Europe and show their ability. It's been not really level, a level playing field. When you talk about French colonialism, is it the same in terms of Belgium's relationship with, with black, um, with black people as well? Is, is, is it like a similar kind of thing that you're talking about? Not in terms of, no, because Belgium, obviously if you're King Leopold. Yeah. No, I mean, I think all forms of colonialism were, colonialism were pretty bad. I think we all accept that. 
but sure. the French method is kind of you know there was like even now they have over a lot of overseas territories mm. where you're you know like in Guadeloupe for example that's here and really from there right yeah you're mm. you're or New New Caledonia where uh, Caron Burr was from you're yeah. French you play you know even though he's born in the South Pacific is yeah, part of Guyana as well with Maluda yeah and whereas Britain Britain doesn't have as many of those anymore but I think also the uh, the French, they, they, that's what they did they, in the, they, were, they, they used their colonies a lot more British tended to it was like they, British didn't let the people, didn't let many people come over to Britain to live until, you know, after the war really, it wasn't uh, whereas in France I think that was I think there was a lot more coming, especially from North Africa you know, it was yeah. a lot more immigration from there uh, earlier so yeah. Well, in terms of like academies and like you said like pathways and stuff so first of all i want to kind of get clarity what league in africa would you say is the, the strongest league in terms of their players and academies as well well i think the, the strongest leagues are the you know teams that normally win the african champions league are like yeah. the egyptian teams the yeah Zamalek and Al Ali, and it's crazy. I went to Egypt in the last summer, and the passion that those guys have for the games, unbelievable. And they're real heavyweights. But I mean, it's a little bit misleading in a way because obviously Egypt produced a lot of players, and there's been that pathway. Well, I talk a lot about this in the book. It's quite a lot of failures before Salah yeah. went from Egypt, and he was actually before he came. You know, he was compared to like badly with El Mahamadi in Egypt. Mm. <laughs> you know, when he was at Chelsea and he flopped. Yeah. Uh, well, it's harsh to say he flopped. You know, Mourinho didn't really give him a chance. Yeah. Everyone was like, oh, why can't you be more like El Mahamadi? Because he's like, you know, consistent. He's been there for a long time. Yeah. But um, so I think, strange. Yeah. But then, you know, it just shows you that what, um, you know, just <laughs> being given a chance can do for you. A bit of faith. But, but in terms of like academies, like, and I go into this a lot in the book actually about this, I think Senegal is the number one country, mm. really, and mm. you know they they're producing so many players. It's really remarkable, actually. Uh, these two academies, which I talk a lot about in the book, are called Generation Foot, which is where mm. Sadio Mane came from, and also Ismailasar from Watford, and then also the Ambars, which I'm sure people have heard of, Arsenal fans will know because of Vieira. He helps us. Yeah. And uh, I speak to the founder of that in in the book, and. Uh, well, in fact, both of the academies, and they're just producing so many good players. I think if you want to list some of them, also Papi Cisse as well from Generation Foot. Um, yeah. Idrissa Gay was from the Ambars. Um, I think I think the last well, the last Afcon, half more than half the squad were from those two academies, mm-hmm. and that's just two, you know. So and like, they're getting good coaching and using good facilities, and you're seeing a lot of players coming through, and they have this ambition. The guy told me to win the World Cup. And you know, like, why not? Like, they've never won the. Yeah, I, I think when, when you look at the pool of African players, is it's not inconceivable to think that if Africa were to keep the main nucle- nucleus of players that they have disposable to them, like you know, in terms of like dual citizenship and, and stuff like that, like if the African players who play for France or even England then played for their home countries, it's not it's perfectly conceivable that these that African nations could be powerhouses of of world football. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the key. The, the, the key is for uh, the, the Sen- especially Senegalese players. They get to Europe probably younger than most most countries, and like they, you know, they, they these academies have got link ups with, with mm. 
clubs in France, like uh, Generation Foot, they go to Mets. They're actually quite a low level now in France as well, so they can really bed them in young. And then they go to, uh, for so Saar went to Rennes after that, and then he goes to Watford for 30 million. And the next move with him, you know, he looks exceptional. Uh, it took him a bit of time. He's the classic, you know, good example. It took him a few months to settle in. It always takes any player from anywhere time to settle in. But, um, you know, he's so talented. And I think they're definitely a country to watch. I think actually it's the fact that they produce more professionals in Europe per capita than any any non-European country anyway, definitely. Wow, that's incredible. That's insane. Yeah, and it's not very big. You know, they have 40 million people there, I think. So, so. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned before, um, it was, I think you mentioned on the TIFO podcast, that, um, that the Senegalese academies felt like they were being undercut in terms of their valuation for, for players. Like, it, it, you know, if you would compare it to maybe the Brazilian market, um, well, the South America market in general, not just the Brazilian market, that, you know, the price um, that their players are valued at is significantly lower than maybe what a European club would uh, value the next star coming out of Santos or, you know, uh, Boca Juniors or whatever. Is any insight as to, as to why that may be? Yeah, I think it's just a legacy of, of history, isn't it, really, unfortunately? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, taking it away from football, I think people realise that Africa is like, you know, it's dominated by the rest of the world and it doesn't really have much of a say over what happens to its raw materials, if you like, if you want to, you know, strip it down to that kind of thing. And it's a real shame, but I think things are starting to change slowly, but I can, you know, he, in the interview that I did with the Sayasek, he, the, uh, the founder of the Ambos, he's very frustrated about it because it isn't fair really if one of one player has been, you know, he's offered half a, half a million euros, I think he said to me, mm. uh, for his best player. He's like one of the best young players in the world. He's just played at the Under-17 World Cup. And then he's, mm. you know, a similar player from Brazil is worth like 50 million euros at the yeah. same age. Doesn't really yeah. make sense. No. It, do, do, um, in, in the African academies, do they do like what Brazil do with like third-party ownership and they like continue to keep... I know, I know it's kind of like... I, I don't know the exact like legal ramifications around it. I'm sure people have found a way around it. But yeah. um, is there that well, kind of like third party ownership uh, element to it in, in, in with these African academies or? I think that possibly there might be some, yeah, there's something mm. going on. But I think, yeah, in, in the background that, you know, there's a lot of murky stuff going on in football that, you know, there's third party ownership is obviously strictly illegal. Yeah. Under as rules. But right, there are. We all know it goes on. Like what, is, what is quite interesting, though, and I'm prepared to say this, I won't get in trouble for saying it, but, uh, you know, if, if a big agency uh, did quite specialise on African players, they could probably make quite a big, you know, a big killing, a big profit. Because you yeah. look at, uh, they spoke on the, on the podcast about uh, the TIFO one, about um, Wilfred Ndidi, and the sort of just said he, he came from Nigeria for, you know, not much money, a few hundred thousand, I think to Genk and then in 18 months he's going for sort of more than 20 million and they'll have a sell-on fee for him as well which you mm. know, he's going to get a big move probably like you know we're talking a lot of money for somebody like NDD and now he's linked to Chelsea I think yeah, yeah I mean he's probably the best in his position in the league most people would agree yeah. and uh, and so yeah and they'll get a sell-on for that and that's only really although they you know they probably played a big role Genk I'm talking about again uh, played a big role in his development um, is it worth all that money for 18 months worth? No, uh, work, you know, it, 
the Nigerian system that produced them should be getting more of that money, shouldn't they, really? Yeah. So, yeah it's, just, it's, it's difficult. It's hopefully a system will develop that's a bit more fairer over the years as people realise the value of, of African players. We, like, in our, in our, like, amongst touchdown frackers, we always have a discussion about North African players and North African players having this, it's, it's almost like um, a unique array of talents in terms of being mavericks and highly technical players. Um, is there any insight as to why they are this type of player? Like so, so often they, they tend to be wide players that are very, very quick, technical as well, and have a lot of flair. What, do you know why? Or is there any insight as to why they produce so many of these types of players? Talking about North Africans specifically. North Africans, yeah. North yeah no, Africans. I agree. I mean, you know, you're talking about Mahrez or, uh, I mean, Salah. And, and, but, yeah, but there's lots of players like that. I think it's yeah, no, kind of most of those... Most of those guys are, are like from France. They grow up in France, don't they? Yeah. In the band, the banlieue, and they play in like it's yeah. similar to in like you know in London and urban areas in England. You play yeah. in tight spaces, in playgrounds, and it also it's you know doing doing some tricks is like sometimes better than scoring a goal in in the, yeah, in the yeah. playground, you know. And I think so. Uh, yeah, it's a traditional thing as well, isn't it? If you've got if you're from a country that's got produces little magicians like that and people will be trying to emulate him whereas you know, you know what I mean like a I don't know in, in Ghana for example they don't really have players like that they want to be they want to be like SEN who's been more strong like, powerhouses, powerhouses. Yeah. it kind of works like that in football I think trends and you know like people want to be like the recent hero kind of thing in that country that's so, interesting that's actually quite that's a fair point that's a fair point because even here um, but I think with England for example I feel like we take inspiration from other people so in even just in, and that's funny culturally but in terms of players as well growing up and you want to be a footballer you're looking at Ronaldinho so you're looking continentally as well intercontinentally you're looking at Ronaldinho looking at the Kakas especially for my generation anyway so I get I, I, I could see why in terms of like the idols and national team idols as well I could definitely see why they'd be looking at certain players that especially influence them and make them want to be quite similar in terms of their play style. I get it. It makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, of course. And, uh, yeah, I think African players have influenced... I mean, I'm writing this in the book, actually, but not many people remember Tony Yaboa, but he was absolutely brilliant. Remember that? I remember that one yeah, goal yeah. where he <laughs> almost broke the like, goal. <laughs> he scored that goal, and I think it was a few days later he scored like another goal. Almost mm. good, but not quite. So, I, th- I think... I think yeah, there was against Wimbledon, and Liverpool. Yeah. But but anyway, so I was a striker at that age, and I was fourteen or something, and I was like, oh, I want to be like that guy because he used mm. to just smack the ball so hard, and I was like, <laughs> don't practice. That's a hassle thing. Like that, you know, like, and that's just what it's like, isn't it? If you have a whoever's the best player, everyone wants to be like Sancho at the moment is really everyone wants that playground player now. Yeah. He's got mm. all those tricks, but he knows how to use them, yeah. and he's you know talking about your environment and stuff and different influences in South London where he grew up I've done a few articles about this in the Guardian but like you've got so many it's a melting pot of cultures and stuff and people you know he there's a lot of Colombians for example who live around there mm-hmm. in, in that area and Pavedo has gone to Leeds you know he's from a Colombian family and I imagine that you know they have kind of like you know culture ops when they're on the in the in the cage yeah. kind of thing yeah. the Colombian tries his, and the guy from Trinidad does his thing you know and it all comes yeah. together yeah it's, I- good we're, we're, it's a we're in a good position in England. We're like we're lucky. I think we're going to see the fruits of that. 
in the next yeah. few years. I think South London undoubtedly produce the best <laughs> the best players. I think they're they're holding England up at the moment, aren't they? With, at the uh, moment, but you know what? By different parts of the country of uh, London, Birmingham, wherever, Manchester, yeah. they're going to see. Well, we don't. You know, South London's not the best. We're the best. We're gonna we're gonna try and catch them up. That's good. I think mm-hmm. competition helps, isn't it? So. Yeah, certainly. <laughs> What can help you take advantage of today's low mortgage rates and save money? Rocket can. You could save hundreds of dollars every month by refinancing with Rocket Mortgage at today's near historic low rates. If your current rate is over 4%, you could lower your payment by over $150 a month, saving thousands in interest every year. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Savings are based on quick and long internal data. Points and fees may apply. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. And analysts consumer access.org. Number 3030. Um... Just uh, you, you, you mentioned AFCON a bit earlier, and um, I wanted to ask you a few questions about African Cup of Nations, actually, because um, it's it's a tournament that I don't feel is respected on the uh, not uh, respected maybe too strong. It obviously is respected, but isn't as respected as maybe it should be, considering the level of talent on display. And I was just wondering what you think is 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 the reason for that, and what. What maybe what maybe could be done to um, make like the Afcon a more appealing competition to people? Obviously, they've changed. I think they've changed the dates now, so they play it in the summer. Even though I think they're changing it now to go to back. Yeah, yeah for the Cameroon one, right? Uh, well, this, it kind of sums up the issue with it. I think that they, they can't decide. And it's rude, but I have a lot of sympathy for them because they have to work around the European season and stuff. Mm. So, like uh, you know, well, they're, they're expected to, but they don't. They tried it last year. I went to Egypt uh, for well, in the summer. It was ridiculously hot, but they managed to do it. And then they've changed it now because of problems in Cameroon and the weather and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I think one suggestion, which I don't think they're going to do, but it doesn't go down well when I say it but, or when other people say it, but is to have it every four years. Mm-hmm. Simple. Because why do they need to have it every two years? Yeah, why, well, do, do, like why do they do it every two years? Because of money. How, how, how uh, often okay. is the Copa America? Is that every four years as well? No, Copa America is every... Is it every year or every two years? I think it's every... Oh, no, I think it's every year, actually, isn't it? Yeah. They, right. they, so, it certainly did go to being, like, every year. I don't know if that was, like, a, well, yeah, a one-off it, or... It, it's, again, down to money. And I imagine that was because of all the... I, I'd say this, all the bribes that they were being paid. Mm. <laughs> the more competitions you have, the more TV rights you can... You know, I'm just reading that book, actually, Red Card. Yeah. To, to be honest, I mean, Europe are probably go, they're going down like a similar route anyway. We're doing this new uh, what what what's the I don't even know what the sort of what it's called that we're the Nations League and it's yeah, it's kind of another tournament, isn't it? Yeah, but I think that the Euro the schedule that we've got in Europe is much more sensible and it like you know gives them a it gives a, a break. Yeah, in, you know, in the odd years and stuff. Whereas in Africa, you know, especially if it has to happen in the middle of the season. I mean, Klopp said in the interview to me, and at the time it had just been moved to uh, sorry to the summer, and he was really happy about that. You could tell he was like, mm, yeah. "I don't think we could have signed three players like they've got Kaita, Salah, and Mane. I don't think we could have had three players like if that hadn't happened." And then they go missing but for imagine, four weeks. You know, say he wants to buy Samuel Trigueze, who's brilliant by the way from Brazil. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm sure you like him, but yeah, he. Uh, they want to buy him. He's probably going to think, sec- you know, have second thoughts about it because he can't afford them. 
Yeah. It's going to be next. It's not long away. We're talking about in the next year. So yeah, it shouldn't. It shouldn't really be something you have to think about as a domestic <laughs> club manager. You know, thinking, oh, you know, Mourinho was always has always been quite a strong supporter of African players as well. He he, you know, says it's unfair. He's, he, I, I, over the years, I looked at it and he was he's on been on the record quite a few times as saying that it should be moved and it shouldn't happen in the middle of the season and stuff. Mm. We have to respect his African players, and it's really not. I did an interview with Kayate, if you check Kayate from Palace in Senegal, and he's really he was really quite angry about it. It was only a few days after they moved it back to January. He was really quite angry about it, like haven't asked us players. So, we think also oh, angry about the fact it was moving, or angry about the fact that people are making a fuss over. No, the fact that no, the fact that it was moving back to January, basically, okay. and, and you know because. Main his main concern, rightly so, is he wants to get in being there for Palace every game. Right. He's getting paid a lot of money to be there, and he, you know, and it, asking them to leave for sort of it's almost like you know six to eight weeks, isn't it? Basically, yeah, sure. Training and everything it doesn't yeah. help. Also, it doesn't help him if when he if he has to leave Palace and has to go somewhere of else. Of course, it yeah. it kind of devalues their, their them really. as a player as well, doesn't it? It's like you know. Yeah. For that season, you could it, probably maybe pay an African player less because of that as well. Because you of that, that, that would yeah. be used against them. That will be used yeah. because you're not well, going to be around for eight weeks. Uh, so I think it's trying to strike a balance with like making money out of it, which they obviously need to do to fund like youth development and stuff like that. And yeah. you know, uh, and then you might see some better African performances at the World Cup as well. I think because sure. you know players would be a bit more rested. Yeah, uh, I mean, we we have seen some great African sides in World Cups. Well, sides that we think should do well, like the Ivory Coast comes to mind, where they had this tremendous pool of players that was, you know, um, I can't remember what World Cup it was exactly. Was it maybe 2010? It yeah, 2006 and 10. Yeah. yeah. They, they did really badly, didn't they? No. Yeah, I don't think they got out of group, did they? But I think one of them, they had a really tough group, though. Um, did, yeah, I think that was 2006. Was it? Maybe like Holland and Germany in the same group or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, they, they've always flattered to deceive and it's really, yeah, it's... It, one of my favourite teams actually was, was Senegal in the 2002, which was a brilliant team. Of uh, just showing you how much talent there is there, like hardly any of those players had come. None of them had come through an academy system, if you like, at the time. It was all like guys who'd managed to get themselves to France and like just work work their way up, just being yeah. you know, like maybe they had a cousin or, or like an auntie who lived there or something like that. Yeah, and they were a really raw, raw team. Like El Hadjouf, everyone remembers him. Salif Jao. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, but they, you know, they they made the most of their uh, their talents and really exciting team. But yeah, I think it was very disappointing at the last World Cup because none of them got through. Mm. Even though again, Senegal were good, they should have got through. They not got knocked out on yellow cards in the end. So. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. insane. Se- Se- Senegal were our adopted. Um, team for the World Cup actually because they're the PNP team on the tour. Yeah, uh, we'll have to explain to Ed what PNP is soon. Maybe that, oh. uh, maybe that's a. Uh, <laughs> we can explain it briefly. Yeah, yeah, we can. Uh, PNP is basically an acronym for pace and power, um, and it's, I guess, it's a, a mockery on the yeah, on the um, idea. Yeah, it's a yeah, mockery yeah. on the idea that pundits and journalists and commentators um, only referencing uh, African players yeah. pace and power um, when it comes ball. to skill, technique, <laughs> all the flair. None of that is intelligence. Generally, gets thrown out the window. Always reference is a address a gay, probably one of the most intelligent players in the world. 
Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, traditional yeah. sense, and uh, and indeed, he mentioned him before as well. Yeah, yeah, but I know I understand what you mean. Like the stereotypes still come thick and fast, don't they? Um, yeah, uh, especially see, Paul Pogba. He's a he's a he gets it all the time. Which, I, as much as I understand, because Pogba is an incredible athlete, but the technical side often gets forgotten about him, which is is so strange to me. It's strange because it's so clear. It's clear. I, um, yeah, I mean, his his dad is uh, is from Guinea. Moved to France in the sixties, so yeah, he's got that. He's got that African flair about his, his feet. I've never seen someone oh. so tall and angular, like with like feet like that, and like his passing sort of range, chip like the chipping. The thing you know, he's really, really neat kind of player. I've never again, never seen a player like that really before. Him, I don't know. It's hard to compare him with anyone else, isn't it? Very unique player. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly in the position that he he plays as well. Like in in terms of what you were saying about big feet for a big man, um, uh, not big feet, sorry, quick feet for a big man. Sorry, uh, every, every big man's got big feet, I think. Um, <laughs> but yeah, quick quick feet for a big man. Um, maybe, maybe comparisons to like Carnu in in that respect, kind of lanky and ball manipulate has like incredible ball manipulation and able mm. to do certain things with the ball that you wouldn't expect of his size. That's, yeah, that's I think there's a similarity, but Carney was more sort of a like a skill, a skills merchant, wasn't he? And then, yeah. Whereas like Pogba, some of the passes, some of the angles and the passes that he makes is like unbelievable, aren't they? You know. Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, he's really special talent. But I think I can understand why people would get frustrated with him because it's uh, especially Man United fans because you don't, they don't see it enough, perhaps, of his yeah. of his amazing ability. He could be. You know, but that's yeah. maybe a question from the manager as well. You know, getting yeah. the best out of him. Definitely. Just just going back to what we mentioned about the PMP thing. So obviously, it's something that is. It's, I think it's becoming more highlighted now, just in terms of like um, the media's coverage of black players and how um, how they are described, whether that be on TV or in newspapers or y- you name it. Um, what is it like? What is it like in the industry right now? Like, is there like a like a, a consciousness about writing about black players and and the way that it um, that people are describing black players? Is there like a consciousness about it now, or or, 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 or I don't know. I, I guess I'm trying to rephrase the question in, in a particular way. But yeah, is there like a do, do you have like a conscious feeling the way you are describing black players? Oh, nice cat. <laughs> my dog is, is yeah sorry about that oh dog he's alright yeah sorry about that um, yeah I understand what you're, I understand what you're asking me yeah I, I certainly do and I think like people of my generation do I'm like well I'm 39 and dope like you know I think that some of the old attitudes are really like still they're still present in in well you know in football unfortunately and I have you know I've said this before on a, a podcast I think but when I first started writing this you know I was really quite hopeful about English, but we looked like we were leading the way in, in many ways in, in like the fight against racism. I know that obviously there were still problems. I think yeah. I'm talking about in 2015, but then obviously in the last five years, uh, it's just got it's gone crazy again, isn't it? And it's really shot actually quite shot me some of it um, because at games I have seen a bit of racism, but I don't. I go to a lot of games obviously to cover them and don't really see it in the stands, but seeing it on social media and stuff is like really quite scary because people, you know, like hide behind their their Twitter handles and stuff like that. So, and you know, obviously I do touch on this in the book as well, the Raheem Sterling statement about 
you know, the way that uh, two, a black player and a white player were treated mm-hmm. in the media. It was just, that was absolutely spot on. I totally, absolutely agreed with him and that. And, you know, I worked for one paper and not that paper that he was talking about, but I'd like to think that where, where I work, we do, we do definitely, you know, think about that sort of thing and risk really, in fact, we had a talk, we had somebody coming in to tell us uh, who's an art um, she won the, um, the uh, what's it called? The uh, uh, an art an art prize. Uh, a ter- I think I think it was might have been the Turner Prize or something like that. Anyway, yeah. and she was a uh, she collated newspaper um, cuttings of like where black people were sort of put with a headline that wasn't you know subconsciously was quite racist. And she was pointing this out to us. And there was a few that I'd done as well. And it was like actually yeah, you know, like thinking about it like. You know, I can see why someone would find that racist. You know, mm-hmm. like even at the time, I wasn't thinking anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think it was actually. I remember the specific example that I did. I'll admit to this. It was. Uh, I think it was Abamyang and um, and um, uh, Lacazette scored. I think the headline was like double trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. you see, like, the way that yeah. the score, okay. I obviously yeah. was like a, my my point of view, trying to do like something that's like rhymes and like was bigging them up really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But actually, like from now, you know, you could see that oh, it looks like two black men in double trouble doesn't look doesn't look right. good. But, you know, like that's the way. But so that actually opened my eyes quite a lot to being just thinking a little bit more through. Obviously, I'm really you know trying to be very conscious of that sort of thing all the time. Obviously, I've written a book about African football sure. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot. Yeah. I was but, more thinking uh, like just generally speaking about the, the yeah, industry. Was, perspective. First, yeah. you know, people, a lot of people in the office were quite, I think, a bit dismissive of her. Mm-hmm. And you can understand a little bit why, because it was from their point of view, maybe seen like pernickety or whatever. But it's it's good to have an it, somebody else who's telling you like a different perspective. I think opens your eyes. Right, and I thought in in those instances as well. I know that a lot of writers will probably feel like it's limiting their creativity as such because they um yeah, yeah like I said, nitpickety. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to cause offence. So, and there's plenty of ways you can say things, to be perfectly honest. And there's plenty of ways you could describe um, a photo or a moment. So, mm. I feel like picking and being careful with your language isn't a bad thing. And I feel if, if that's the, the shift that is necessary, I feel like it needs to be done, really and truly. Um, yeah. But again, yeah. a lot of the time, it's subconscious. A lot of the time, people are doing it and not really seeing... Um, the problems and the, the, I guess, the triggering that that can occur. So it's it's a, it'll always be a constant battle, um, and it will. I do think it will need, I guess, constant reminders throughout um, for it to kind of stick. If you get what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a, it's a matter of evolution. I think, and hopefully, I'm not writing off people of you know a certain age and stuff because I'm there's loads of good people out there of all ages, you know. But as you know, people who've grown up in multicultural societies, like, um, and it's just the norm for them, and they like it, and there's not a problem for them. They, you know, as more, more this is, you know, I'm being very idealistic here, probably, but you'd hope that, like, you know, it's certainly the case where I live, like, people just live together, and there's no, like, as far as I see, you don't, like, have racist incidents, like, between us, but obviously, it's different the way that the police treat people, though. That's, that's yeah. something I can't, I, I, I I don't get treated badly by the police because I'm probably because I'm white, but it's a totally, you know, I can't comment on a black person. I, I just believe if, if someone says it, that they get treated badly. I believe what they say because the way I, the evidence is like 
quite clearly there, isn't it? So, but yeah, it's 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 about I think hopefully evolution of attitudes over time, you know, and that's a lot of what this book is about as well. Like at the start, you should see some of the I mean, I put it in the book some of the language that the newspapers used to use about. Arthur Wharton, they were, they, yeah, they use every word under the sun. You could go to prison for some of the language they use. And that was 100 years ago. And then, you know, you follow the story. It, it's got better. You know, the people that everyone, they used to make uh, Zulu chants at Albert Johansson when he like, was in the tunnel at Wembley. When he was about that was the FA Cup final, right? Is that yeah. yeah. And, you know, and it was just some of the stuff I've got. I tried not to do too much of it, but some of it is really sickening, actually. Mm. Makes your blood boil. And mm. uh, it's not that long ago. So you see how far we've kind of come from that point. There's no doubt we've made some, some progress, although we're not there yet, you know. Yeah. So. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask, no Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. Yeah. Hopefully heading in the right direction, but still a long way to go. Definitely. So, so, so in terms of... Um, I guess the, the, we're talking about the discrepancy in treatment of, um, I guess, black people and just, uh, we can just re- relate it back to black players again. Um, do you feel like African players as such, because I know Demba Barr had some comments in regards to salaries and being paid and being underpaid and feeling underpaid in the Premier League. Um, and I'm not quite sure what his salary was when he came to eventually made it to Chelsea. Um, but his comments about being underpaid and feeling undervalued in the league, um, give us some like, insight as, as to that. And why, well, I guess, Premier League players are obviously going to be discussing salaries amongst themselves. So I just want to kind of understand see, where that came from and how we kind of came to understand or know that that's what was happening to him. Yeah, I think it's a good question, actually. Like, uh, I was just thinking, I think, I think I saw a stat the other day that Salah is now the fourth best player, paid player in the world. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe at the top end, uh, it's getting better. But I think generally, yeah, as we mentioned, the African Nation Cup, that might be a reason that players get paid less. Mm-hmm. And maybe because clubs think they can get away with playing African players less as well. Mm-hmm. Like uh, Just going back to something in the book, uh, this is a good example of this, I think. And obviously things are a bit more professional now, but this is only like 1993 I'm talking about. So Peter and Love, who played for uh, Zimbabwe and Coventry, Fantastic he, was player. he was an amazing player, yeah. And and so I think I can't remember the exact numbers. Can I look it up? That's all right. I've got it right here. Yeah, no yeah sure. Yeah. I just want to check how much he was getting paid when he first came, his first contract. So, and there's a story in the book um, about how he, it, this guy had a bet with his friends back in Zimbabwe. He was studying it, in England. Is it £800 a week? Something like that. I can't, anyway, it doesn't matter the exact figure. Anyway, yeah. so just quickly say this story. Um, this guy uh, was a student in London from his from Zimbabwe and he bet his friends oh, I can go and meet Peter in love and get his autograph so he goes to the training ground sleeps in his car overnight <laughs> and like they don't speak the same language from Zimbabwe but Peter said that he was from the same village but anyway and he was introduced to the manager and, and by, by Peter and said oh Peter this is my boss this is my agent and that's how this guy Winston who's a lovely man 
became uh, Peter and Love's agent. And so Peter, yeah, it's a great story. He didn't. Peter didn't have a an agent, and he was getting paid. I think it was a lot less than that. I think it's like three hundred okay. a week. Wow, something like that. And then so Winston goes in to negotiates him uh, for him, and I like, bought a suit especially for it, and, <laughs> and, uh, and eventually comes out with like uh, you know one thousand two hundred a week or something like that. And then and then you know. So he was, they, they were trying to get away with offering him peanuts, basically, mm, the moral yeah. of the story. And it was only this guy who wasn't even a proper agent. Yeah. But knew it was business savvy enough to, like, you know, know that they were trying to rip him off, basically. Yeah. And I think do that has gone on over the years quite a lot, actually, you know? It's, yeah. Do, do you think, though, that um, just in terms of uh, Pete and Love's, um, in terms of his feeling at, at that at that point in time do you think it was kind of like there was like a feeling there that i'll just take what is given uh or i'm just trying to understand like the psyche behind you know because surely you would know that you're being underpaid to it at that level is there like a a part of maybe the psyche that is like saying you know, just accept it. I may not get this chance again. And, and, and yeah, there like definitely that. was. Well, I mean, talking about a lot of the earlier players, there was like, the, the, definitely there was that sense of like, I'm so lucky to be here. I don't want to mm. upset them. It was like, you know, kind of almost like subservient attitude. And like, you know, some, some of the, yeah. Uh, but with Peter, I think he just, he, he was only a kid. He was only like 20, 21. Yeah. And he just like, he got spotted in a match uh, on, when they were on tour. And it was like, you know, a dream scenario invited over and like, he's so good that he just rocketed into the top, you know, quickly. And I think even at that time, actually, I mean, people did have agents, but it wasn't the same as it was. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Even England, you know, players from England, it wasn't, wasn't quite as professionally done back then, but still, yeah, I think it's generally is quite a trend, especially from players coming from out. And there's a lot of, you know, vultures out there. There's a really mm. good book actually called the lost boys. If anyone's interested about mm. that, like, you know, these guys who sell dreams basically to kids from Africa and they're like con men, you know, and they end up in France like on or somewhere on the streets. Basically, mm-hmm. someone promises them a career and they might be the best player in their, like, country even or village or whatever, you know, the area. And uh, they, you know, they raise loads of money, their family, like, sells all their stuff to get them over to Europe and then they just left oh. and they're, like, homeless, you know, and... Is, it, is that so maybe an, is that a reason why? Them, unfortunately, is that like a reason as to why like work permits are so stringent over here to to kind of stop things like that from happening, like the trafficking element of yeah, of yeah, these. that's part of it. And then this was always a bit of protectionism about about the Premier League, isn't it? Mm, like, yeah, keeping it British kind of thing. Not, don't want to. Well, yeah, I think it's uh-huh. more of a quality thing that they decided to do. Right, and okay. it actually worked quite well, although it means our clubs have to pay like premiums for play, for players mm. but it's it's pretty tough to get a work permit you have to be you know especially african countries you have to be in the top 75 countries um otherwise you get you can get special dispensation but sure just happened a few times yeah. countries in the top 75 in fifa no because I, I was looking at colo Torre. i didn't realize colo Torre came straight to arsenal from um an ivorian academy i actually thought he went to belgium along with yaya but mm. he didn't he came straight from ivory coast and but I really I, I changed. He was an Ivory Coast at the t- he was an Ivory Coast international at the time. I think. Did he not play for Beveren as well? I think beforehand. Okay, maybe Wikipedia is deceiving me then because I actually did think he played um, in Belgium. But may- I think maybe you're right. 
Yeah, they had, that was one of the first link-ups. And you're seeing, you know, there's quite a lot of these going around now that, like, uh, you know, really important. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, I think he, yeah, it says he went straight from Asik Mimosas, who was the big powerhouse team in uh, in it. I mean, this was something that Wenger did. I talk about um, George Weyer and uh, Christopher Ray, who was the first African to win the, the title. Mm-hmm. And Wenger just, you know, he, he wasn't scared of bringing in a player straight from Africa. He brought in... Um, he brought in George Weah to Monaco and he was, yeah. you know, six years later, he was the best player in the world. Yeah. And Christopher Ray's got some um, important goals for us in that 97, uh, 98 season and winning yeah, the yeah. double. I'd say that's one of my favourite chats. I interviewed him uh, for the book and he's like, uh, you know, he's like, like genuinely thrilled to be like tra- trying to track down and like remembered because, yeah. you know, the first person to win the Premier League, the uh, first African person. Oh, wow, really? Or win yeah. any English title, yeah. So it's insane. He was a trendsetter, and Daniel Amakachi was the first African to win the FA Cup, which wow. was uh, '95. And that's what I'm saying. It's not that long ago as well. It's really, yeah. it really, you put it put it puts into perspective how not not long ago that was. It's literally mm. 15 years ago, which is mm. wild. You know what I mean, it's literally yeah. five. So it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite right. Now, I've got in the book, I've got like a list of all the players that have played since the Premier League. Anyway, the start of the Premier League, and it's like. There's maybe about 40 max, like before the turn of the century, and then mm. like 300 since then. Wow, that's so insane. Yeah. Um, Ed, I've got some, um, we put out to our listeners that you were going to be coming on the pod, and we've got quite a few listeners' questions. We won't go through all of them because I, I realize that um, you haven't got all night to talk to us. But um, <laughs> if you don't mind, we've got a few that we'd just like to put to like, you. And, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, okay. So I've got one from our Discord server um, from twenty three underscore k underscore g. Um, he asks. Right. So he's got two questions, but we're limited to one. Um, he asks, um, what uh, what African nations are producing the best hidden talents we may we may not have come across fondly in the league? Uh, well, I think there's some that maybe aren't quite yet in the league that are to, definitely to watch out for from Mali. Okay. Uh, apart from Senegal, I mean, I've mentioned them quite a bit mm-hmm. already, but Mali's youth system is unbelievable. They produce, well, the, well anyway, play, the players that are coming out of Mali, uh, a lot of them are going to the, into the Red Bull system. Um, oh, so they're like, yeah. uh, there's a guy called Amadou Haidara um Leipzig. Mm-hmm. Who's RB, he's gone to RB Leipzig now. And he's very good. Naturally, naturally, go from yeah. There. <laughs> that, yeah that's, that's the path that uh, in the that's book the I talk a lot about. Mane and Kaita both went that that direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, there's quite a lot of talent coming from Mali, and then uh, where else? In Nigeria, there's a lot of good young players. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just yeah, I think there's some. You know, I've mentioned Chikwesi before, and uh, Om- Omniscient. I forget how to say that uh, from Lille, the striker. Oh, yeah. oh yeah, I'm gonna say I'm gonna get cussed now. If they say say his name, go on, say what I, yeah. I honestly don't even know how to say it. <laughs> he, he's been Osterman. Osterman, that's it. Yeah, and I you know, I think Nigeria looking good. Thing is Nigeria always produces a lot of good players. It's just whether they end up at the top. Exactly, at the right clubs. At the right clubs, yeah, all sorts of different things. But I think, yeah, Chukwesi, definitely, I think. Yeah, I've been, I've been watching him a lot because, um, because I support Chelsea and I've always been quite wary about our right-hand side and I've always been looking at, like, left-footed, quick left-footed wingers um, mm. that have got a goal for it and Chukwesi is definitely one up there. Mm. Uh, mm. 
got a great uh, heritage of African players, oh, which yeah. I go into in yeah. the book quite a bit with uh, SEN, doing an interview with SEN and uh, talks about him. He used to go out in London with all the African guys like in uh, Peckham and yeah. Campbell and places like that. It was quite interesting. Fantastic. It's interesting that Chukwueze actually went, actually came to Spain straight from Nigeria. That doesn't seem like a a common pathway into Spanish football, where you wouldn't traditionally expect African players to go straight into into Spain. Uh, it's happening more and more, and I think yeah, I think everyone knows about Belgium and France, Germany joining the party in Austria, as we mentioned, Red Bull. But there's a lot of German scouts now looking directly, and, and obviously Switzerland as well. That's where Salah came through with Basel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really uh, everyone's kind of getting in on, in on the act. And uh, there's been actually, you know, it's been going on for a while now that like clubs, there's a, there's a, you know, this Barcelona coach has set up a big, a big uh, system in Africa, which, you know, took a lot of players to Qatar, to the Aspire Academy, and quite a few of them made it through that way. So it's really sort of, a bit of a gold rush in a way for mm-hmm. these outs and club, but it's like I say, it's kind of it's on the edge. You know, you've got it's got to be regulated properly, otherwise there's going to be some you know criminal criminals getting involved or that do get involved with it because it's you know there's, there's rich rewards to be had if you find a really good player. So yeah, definitely, definitely. We've got, um, we've got another question from um, Fifi Fofam on Twitter. Um, said in the in the boy from um, Bambali. Um, Ed touches on um, Mane downing tools because he had his head turned for Manchester yeah. United. Um, how close was that that deal um, to going through? Yeah, I saw that one actually earlier on, and I was thinking about that. Yeah, I think there was a lot of interest, but I think he was quite keen on on Klopp, mm. uh, and I know that he actually Tottenham as well. He, I think he believe he went went to the training ground uh, at Tottenham. And uh, Pochettino really wanted him as well. But he decided to go to Liverpool. I think in the end, it was pretty much always going to happen because he wanted to prove Klopp wrong. And I talked to Klopp about this and he, uh, he told me how he misjudged, how he misjudged Sadio the first time he met him. Yeah. He was wearing a baseball cap, as he often does, I think, off the pitch. Maybe yeah. it was like at an angle and he said, he, you know, he was like, a cool, he, the way he said it to me was, uh, he was a cool guy. Yeah, he saw a German way, and he like he looked looked like a rapper and this, this yeah. stuff. And he so he, this was when he was at Dortmund, and he turned down the chance to sign him. Mm. Uh, but I think Mane wanted to prove him wrong from that point, and he and he has. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, it's funny though. If you look back when he was at Southampton, he had a knack of scoring goals against yes. Liverpool and mm. doing. Yeah, doing he good. did. That's really. very interesting. It's yeah. interesting yeah. because it's interesting because it could have easily gone the other way. Because he was prejudged by Klopp, he could have thought, well, I never want to play for him again, or I never want to play for him, full stop. But yeah. the determination to prove someone wrong can do wondrous things, honestly. Because like Didier, really Drogba, yeah, Arsenal, right. Didier Drogba against Arsenal, every single time. I think yeah, you find that, that Salah is also being driven quite yeah. heavily by Mourinho. Yes. Well, so is Kevin De Bruyne. Kevin and, De Bruyne as well. Mm. Kevin De Bruyne, may, it may not even be, I think it might be the Chelsea thing in general. Because I remember when, even when Mourinho wasn't there and he scored against us at Stamford Bridge, I've never seen De Bruyne celebrate like that ever in my life. No, the no, he anger. Was, he, used to, 
I mean, I know his, his agent quite well, and he, I know he was really affected by that, and he was yeah. determined to... The way that he played in Germany that season, uh, was it Werder yeah. Bremen? Bremen Bremen, yeah, Werder Bremen, yeah. He was unbelievable, and they're such a bad team. Uh, like, even now, you know, everyone knows the crap they are now, but then they were no, not much better, and he yeah. was just... It was like a one-man team. Yeah. And, yeah, anyway, yeah. yeah I think you're right. It, revenge is a, is a powerful... It's a powerful force. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask, no Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. Um, S-G-A-N-T-S-O-N-T-S-O underscore is the best way I can put it, unfortunately. I, I, I can't. How do you, how do you, I don't know how to pronounce his name. But um, he, asked, uh, rank, he asked if you could rank your top five greatest African players post-80s. That's oh, wow. a lot to choose from. I think that's going to be quite hard, isn't it? No, it's all right. Well, post-80s. Uh, well, so in the modern era, then basically, yeah, uh, yeah, I think, I think so. Uh, well, in England as well. Well, I think, uh, I don't, yeah, no, I think it doesn't have to be in England if you don't want to, in terms of honors and influence. And as much as I don't like them, <laughs> I have to say, uh, DDA Drogba is probably number one, <laughs> but yeah, it's really hard to like. Uh, somebody tried to see, uh, did the top eight the other day on Twitter, and I like did mine, and I was like, oh, what about this guy? Yeah. So, I mean, there's just so many. So, I obviously like the modern players like Salah, Mane, and Mares as well. Yeah. Someone asked me why he's not on the cover because I couldn't get everyone on the cover. <laughs> yeah. and I, wanted, I wish I'd got an Arsenal player on the cover now as well because there was a lot of. I used to like um, Karno a lot as well back in the day yeah. from uh, that era. And as I said before, Yaboa and uh, Lucas Radeve as well was a brilliant player. Yeah, um, and yeah I don't know. Uh, Yaya Torre. Also yeah, got to be, to be in there, hasn't he? I think for me, Yaya has to be probably the best centre midfielder the Premier League's had, maybe. Yeah, yeah he's up there. Many. He's definitely up there. Yeah, yeah. I think. I mean, those those five. Uh, yeah, it's just so hard to pick. I think yeah. if you, it's easier to do it in like sort of ten year in decades, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I could do that. Like SCN as well. Remember, people remember how good he was. Yeah. Do, do you feel like players? Well, I guess like Yaya Torre. Do you feel like he his time in England was underrated? I guess, by the wider audience, I guess, and the wider fans? A little bit. I think, no, I think most people will recognise how good he was. But mm. I think he, he didn't help himself with some of the, well, maybe it was him, maybe it was his agent or whatever, yeah, with some of the, like, birthday cake things and all that. <laughs> and that. But, but he's, you know what, Yaya Toure is a very single-minded man and he's, like, yeah. he's done a lot. He's, he's doing a lot. He's trying to be, like, a, a role model and figurehead for, like, you yeah. know, anti-racism and stuff. Yeah. yeah, and yeah, I think it's interesting the fallout with Pep Guardiola, though, wasn't it? I mean, I mentioned that in the book as well with the stuff for African players, and yeah, um, yeah, it was it was quite it's a sad way to end it though, because obviously he's a massive hero at um, City. But if he felt that way, then it's good that he, yeah, yeah, you know, if that's what he thinks, then he should say it. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. Your story in general is is amazing. I, I can't remember where I've heard it, but you know, just uh, I think it may have been Graham Stack talking about. Um, some of Yaya Torre's, um, like he just, when Graham Stack was on loan at Beveren, maybe he was there with Yaya Torre, 
and he yeah. talks a lot about his experience um, working alongside Yaya. And he just mm. said, like, when he first saw him, he was unbelievable at football. He couldn't believe how amazing he was. But he was such a quiet guy. He, you know, he, it's a, it's a really good story actually. I can't remember where I heard it, but um, yeah, um, it was, it was absolutely brilliant. I think everyone remember it that you know he carried and at City. I mean, he really was like a catalyst for them turning into a super club. Really, wasn't he? He was yeah. like. And also, actually, I'd like to mention Vincent Company. I know he's not African birth, but you know his dad was a was a like from was from Democratic Republic of Congo. Mentioned in Belgium earlier and everything, mm-hmm. and he was yeah. uh, like you know a, a political prisoner and stuff. Oh wow! So, wow. And, and the influence of Company uh, in Man City and in English football is massive as well. And I mm-hmm. think you know he would be the first to admit his African heritage yeah. is very like a massive part of him. Of him. Yeah. He's definitely an ambassador from football, a million percent. I think. No, I don't yeah. think it's very difficult to, even like an opposing fan, and you could get quite tribal. But in terms of company, you could, it's very hard to find bad words to to say about him. Just given his aura and the way he speaks and how eloquent he is, it's very difficult to. Um, yeah, I mean, you can imagine somebody like him being, you know, a real leader beyond football, couldn't you? Like his exactly. dad, his dad's the first black mayor in Belgium. That's I <laughs> I wouldn't put it past. I wouldn't. It's like he's it. destined to do it, isn't it? It's like written in the stars. I don't know what he, what role he could have, but you know, the world needs somebody like that at the moment. Don't yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. You know, international person as well. Yeah, hundred percent. So many languages, like you know, and he's lived in England and he's lived yeah. Belgium and he's yeah, he's got a, he's a great guy. And it was just apps. I thought, even though Liverpool didn't win the title, and my book is a lot about the scored, last man. season, that that goal that he scored, and that was the day before Liverpool beat Barcelona as well in that yeah. crazy game. And yeah. it all just—it was mad. It all just came together. Like, like yeah. everyone remembers those few days. Great game. Well, yeah, Man City were doing nothing in that game whatsoever. Didn't look like <laughs> yeah. scoring. Yeah, it was just amazing. Oh, and it was, yeah. I've got a good quote. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's like if you don't. If you don't try, I was like, "Who else is going to do it?" And I said, yeah. I'm like, do it myself. I actually remember him like running up to take that shot. And I was like, "No, no Vincent, no, don't shoot. do it, Vincent!" Like, and then I was, I just watched it going. I was like, "Oh my, thank God, thank you know God!" What it was? <laughs> I, I remember he, he did an interview after scoring that goal, and he was like, "Sane tried to tell him don't shoot." Bernardo said, don't shoot. And yeah, he said, yeah. "You lot, I've said it. I'm going to shoot now." <laughs> <laughs> he said, "I'm going to shoot now." And then it, was, like, it was an apt moment, and like he's so great, like, really gracious the way that they won it as well. I think that was, yeah. it was just unbelievable title race, wasn't it? That yeah. I'll, never, I'll never forget. That it was really, really exciting. Yeah. So, a final question from me: um, What's your top five African national team? So, based on talent, currently, what would you say is your top five? Well, I, I mean, I'm going to base it a bit on what I saw last summer. Yeah, uh, Egypt and uh, well, it's hard to look past Algeria at the moment because they did win it. But yep. I've got a soft spot for Senegal, as you probably realise. Mm. Yeah, and Nigeria obviously did okay. They're getting there, but it's a new generation, new team. Yeah, um, and um, Egypt obviously with Salah. Yeah, and then it's quite open, really. This is the good thing about it as well. And we're seeing it with like um, I mentioned this earlier as well, but to somebody, but. Mabwana Samata, first Tanzanian. We're seeing people from like East Africa coming to England now yeah. as well, which is great. And it's, there's a lot more players around like from less uh, well-known African countries. And it means the standard yeah. is generally getting mm-hmm. higher. So it's quite hard to pick. Like Morocco have got a great team at the moment. Mm-hmm. Hakimi, 
from yeah, Dortmund. Fantastic player. Amazing player. Yeah, and it's yeah. not just him. Uh, you know, they've got lots of players. Yeah, Ziyech, exactly. Um, they're really coming coming to the fore now. So there's a lot of good teams around. I, I, I was hoping that Morocco might do quite well in the last uh, AFCON because I like yeah. him now. The coach, but uh, they didn't. They didn't no. quite hit it a lot. Hit, uh, set it on fire. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you, yeah, you, there's lots, lots of teams to choose from. They've all got great nicknames as well. It's a good thing about. That. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you mentioned um, Egypt being because I think whenever you talk about African football in general, Egypt always have to be mentioned. But and they've always done well in the Afcon, but never been able to translate it into World Cups. And I was just wondering why? Why is that? Why are they so good on in their home, uh, like in their continental oh. competitions? But I don't. Have they, how many World Cups they've been to? Maybe it's only two. It's only two now. Is so. it two? Is it? Yeah. Well, the first one, uh, they actually had a really good team. And anyone who you, I don't know, you guys remember this, but they were in England's group in 1990. Mm-hmm. And England was a nil nil. No, sorry, England <laughs> beat one. I, I'm just born. England beat them one nil, and it was it was a really tight group. That group it was really boring. Like everyone remembers 1990 uh, World Cup, like it was like you know Gaza, and it was amazing. Yeah. But in our group was England, uh, England, Republic of Ireland, Holland, and Egypt, mm-hmm. and it was like nil. All the games were nil, nil, nil. nil. One, yeah. One, apart from England beat Egypt one nil, so we topped the group. Then the other three had to draw lots. To oh. see who, <laughs> no, sorry, Ireland, Ireland, and Holland had to draw lots to see uh-huh. who came second. And then Egypt just got knocked out with this last-minute goal against England, so they were quite good. And then, obviously, in the last World Cup, they had a real uh, disappointment. Like, you got to remember, Salah wasn't all there, was he? Mm, injured. Was injured. And everything in the cup in the European Cup final. So um, I think, yeah, hopefully, the, bit, the thing is, it's quite tough to qualify for the World Cup if you're an African team because five five countries, I think, get through. And it's really, you know, it's really quite savage, the, the qualifying process. You, you're, you're out if you, is if you want process, to say. Is, is that process quite similar to the, um, the South American? Um, no, they have groups of four, I think. And then they, they have like a preliminary qualification and they go into like a... a win group and then you normally have a playoff. Exactly. Playoff. Yeah. And yeah. one thing I've noticed about... One thing I've noticed about African football is, is in terms of the qualifiers, no one seems to win away from home. <laughs> it's just like, it's so difficult to win away from home. The home advantage there is insane. Yeah, you've got to think that's the, the different conditions that you've got such a massive continent. Like, yeah. Although, you know, uh, and like, you, you, could be, you could be from North Africa in your summer and you fly to a Southern African team, you're suddenly like in the cold winter. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's, big, it's, it's quite a leveller, I think. Uh, and that's why a few, you know, more of the minnows have started to qualify for kind of the tournaments uh, now and then. So that's good. I think, you know, it helps to, if, if we can, you know, see more countries getting to tournaments like that, it's gonna, only going to help the overall standard. So it's good. 100%, man. Um, Ed, I, I appreciate you for, for, for joining us. And um, it's, been, it's been a pleasure talking to you, really. It has. No, thanks. thanks very much. It's been great. Uh, yes, yeah, time's flown. I can't believe how quickly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, now it's gone. Now it's gone. Um, where where can people find? Uh, I know it's on Amazon, but is there a particular uh, point you would like to find people your uh, uh, f- uh, let people find your book? Yeah, I mean, if you go to my Twitter, I've got like a pin tweet which uh, links you to the Amazon one, but it's at Waterstones as well and a few other places. I think uh, I think you can. Um, I think W H Smith as well. But yeah, please. Try and uh, you can get it on Kindle as well, actually, and, and okay. not just in the UK. So, yeah, please spread the word and like tell all your friends and stuff like that. I just want as many people to try and read it as possible because it's a subject that's uh, 
really important, I think, to for people to know about. Sure. Thank you very much for Thank you, Ed. Sure. Thanks very much. It's been great fun. Cheers, Cheers guys. Thank you. Take care. We begin today's meditation with a few sipping exercises to remind us a little treat can go a long way. So pick up your McCafe iced coffees, close your eyes, and deep sip in. And deep satisfaction out. <sighs> Take a treat retreat at McDonald's. Right now, get a McCafe iced coffee in any size and any flavor for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price of participation may vary. Sports Social Podcast Network.